Does your nonprofit organization need to raise more money? Work with the leading teach to fish consulting firm Petrus Development. Check us out at PetrusDevelopment.com. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. Tim! Timmy boy! It's time we be gone! Your father yells at you to come with him and your family below deck. You pretend not to hear because you just really aren't ready to go. But let's be honest. What eight-year-old about to set sail on a boat across the ocean wants to spend the next six weeks below deck? It's 1840 and you're on a boat about to traverse across the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. You're just eight years old, but today you, your parents, and your brothers and sisters are leaving the only life you've ever known to start anew. You don't know much about this new land other than it's a far cry from the potato fields in the tiny village of Limerick County, Ireland. Your brothers and sisters are nervous, but you don't feel that. You're filled with an overwhelming sense of adventure and excitement. Everything you own is packed in a tiny bag, but it's more than enough for you. You've got one extra shirt, one extra pair of pants, and your most prized possession, a small pocket knife that you whittled yourself. Your dad taught you how to carve, and you finished this knife just in time for the trip. You see things differently than others in your family. You now see every small tree branch and scrap of wood on the boat as a future masterpiece, something that, in your hands, you can carve and shape into a couple of coins and one day into a fortune. Today is the first day of the rest of your life, and you can't wait to get started. As the horn blows, you run to the edge and peer out across the ocean, trying to get a glimpse of your new home. Thomas, how? Your father calls you again to come below deck with the rest of your family, but you still don't want to go. You want to stay out here as long as possible, listening to the birds, the sailors, and the waves crashing against the side of the boat. Tim! Tim! Come along, boy! Your father calls for a third time, and finally, you make the sign of the cross, turn around, and head down. For the rest of the six-week voyage, these images will have to do. But you go, dreaming about the knives, the life, and the cities that someday, the good Lord willing, you will build in the new land they call America. Welcome back to another season of Holy Donors. I'm super excited to learn about this gentleman, Tim, Timmy boy. My name is Matt. I'm going to be guiding us through this story today, keeping us on track and, and learning all we can about Timmy boy. We've also got in the studio, Andrew. Hey, Matt. I'm thrilled to be back in the studio with you guys. And he's our expert today. Uh, who, me? Yeah, you. Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Thaddeus in studio today. Hey, good morning, Matt. And not to be forgotten, the one and only, the one who makes us sound unbelievable. We've got Ren with us as well. Hey guys, this is Ren. Happy to be here. All right, that was a great introduction of this season's Holy Donors with Thomas House Scanlon and then Thaddeus playing the part of Thomas's dad. What are you talking about? That was a professional voice actor. Oh, sure, sure it was. So Thomas went by TH and he also went by Tim, as we said, within the thematic introduction we had by a professional voice. I'm excited to get to know more about Tim. Uh, you know, we started at eight. 
I want to know where he goes, where he's going to end up, what his life's all about, and why he made it onto Holy Donors. Yeah, so as you mentioned in the intro, I'm going to be playing the, quote, expert on Tim Scanlon. I did all the research. Um, big, big quotes. <laughs> big time quotes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, to fit around my giant, massive ego, right? Yeah. So I am excited about talking about Tim. We're going to dive into some history on the state of Texas, city of Houston, the Civil War, a lot of stuff. So it's a joy to be back with you, back with our listeners. And one of the things that I love about doing this show is that we get to talk about great Catholic folks in history who really aren't known very well. We have talked about some that have been known very well, you know, Danny Thomas, for example, Catherine Drexel, Babe Ruth. But, you know, we also get to uncover people like John Raskob, George W. Strake, and now Tim Scanlon, who, you know, is kind of an unknown in our history books and yet contributed significantly to our culture and to all the stuff around us. Yeah, and he's really a guy who is not well known in Texas history, period. I mean, he's not in one of the major foundational histories of Texas that I consulted. There's not even an index entry about him. Is there a reason for that? And so, you know, we'll dive into maybe some of the thinking around how Tim Scanlon has been memorialized or not memorialized. Mm -hmm. He's also an amazing father to seven wonderful daughters. So I'm really excited to share his story with you, share the story of the daughters. So let's talk about where Tim was headed on that boat way back in 1840, right? Very little is known about him other than that his family left Ireland in 1840 when he was just eight years old. Thaddeus, maybe you can jump in here and set the stage for what the world was like back then. Okay. Well, Ireland was a land of desperation, poverty, and faith. I think those are all some points of connection that many of us have with Ireland, especially in the 19th century. Remember, it was not an independent country. It was a colony of Great Britain that was standing on the precipice of what would become the Great Potato Famine. 1845 to 1850. So Tim's family leaves right before the famine strikes. That famine ended up dispatching to the grave one-third of Ireland's total population. Wow. Wow. It was devastating. Families fled for not only the United States, but Canada, Australia, New Zealand, other points uh, away from Ireland. Some even fled to, to England. 20% of those who left Ireland for a transatlantic voyage died. Wow. So the fact that Tim made it to the United States is remarkable. Yeah. I mean, a six-week voyage on a boat of any sort, but especially, you know, back in the 19th century um, Mm -hmm. when technology was what it is. Nothing guaranteed. Nothing guaranteed. A life of risk. Between 1841 and 1850, you know, potatoes were the staple of the Irish diet. So that's why it was so, so devastating to the population. Like I also alluded to, Ireland was a land of oppression. The Irish were under legislation and treatment by the colonizing English that restricted how they could express their faith. They were um, practicing Catholics. There were limited civil and political opportunities for them. This all stretched back to the 18th century with the Irish penal laws. And so that was another kind of push factor for Irish to leave for the United States, a place that they viewed very favorably as truly a land of opportunity for them and a land where they could live and practice their faith freely. So port cities like Boston, Baltimore, New York became major landing points. And a lot of times 
the Irish stayed in those urban areas. They didn't really radiate out mm. into the, the middle of the country the way, say, German immigrants did. German immigrants tended to not stay in the cities and get on their way to the farming areas of the middle of the country. Right. But they uh, one thing that the Irish definitely became was they became really the backbone of the Catholic Church in the United States. They were, by far, they predominated in the episcopacy, in the priesthood, and pretty much when a native-born American Protestant thought of Catholics, they thought of Irish, and when they thought of Irish, they thought of Catholic. So those two identities were basically synonymous. Yeah, whenever I worked up in Ohio, one of the priests that was there was Father Vinnie McKiernan, mm. and he w- entered the seminary when he was 12 or 13 years old, just because that's what his family set him up for. And at the time, he had been uh, ordained over 60 years when I worked with him and loved it. I mean, oh, loved wow. every uh, loved, loved everything about the What a treat so, for you to get to work with him. Yeah. So you know what else that story makes me think of, talking about all the potatoes, is you guys remember that scene in Forrest Gump when he's talking about shrimp and he's talking with Bubba? <laughs> Who could forget it? Yeah. So, uh, was, it, was it a scene or was it half the movie? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, touche. In what your was. mind, it was half the movie. <laughs> but remember when, when Bubba meets Forrest and Bubba starts going on about all the ways you can prepare shrimp? Oh, yeah. Shrimp kebabs, pineapple shrimp, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, chocolate-covered shrimp, cherry-covered <laughs> shrimp. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to the potato, right? I mean, you can boil it, fry it, bake it, stewed potatoes, cream potatoes, potatoes au gratin, Irish stew, French dip, fry. Dip them in chocolate, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. sure somebody's tried it. <laughs> I would say if you're saying you can dip a shrimp in chocolate and eat it, then potatoes are probably acceptable as well. Haven't you taken the French fries at, at Wendy's and dipped them into the the frost the chocolate frosties? That's that's, that's not a shrimp. That, oh, that's true. That's not a shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, so sorry. Potato pancakes. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Tater tots. I, I'm responsible for this and I apologize. But let's get back on track, right? So Tim leaves Ireland in eighteen forty and his family moves to New York City. He lives there until he's twenty one years old and then he up and moves to Texas in eighteen fifty three. So let's listen to a clip from Larry Massey, president of the Scanlon Foundation, about Tim moving to Texas back in 1853. He got started by selling pocket knives on the corner in Houston. I mean, that's kind of how he made a little money to feed himself. And obviously, he was very hardworking and took advantage of the, the city that was starting to grow. But he maintained his identity you know, because he was a minority. I mean, he was a Catholic. In those days, it was only a handful around, and they weren't very popular. So in this clip from Larry, we hear about how Tim basically moved to Texas and got started selling pocket knives. Are you looking for a chance to connect with other development professionals and learn the latest in fundraising best practices? If so, join us at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida for the 2022 Petrus Development Conference on June 13th through 15th. Connect with others from fundraising offices, both big and small, from dioceses, campus ministries, schools, parishes, apostolates, and more. Register today at petrusdevelopment.com PDC22. Register today and you could win a free two-night hotel stay at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort. Space is limited, so visit PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22 to reserve your spot today. Now, I always love talking about how great Texas is, but what is it like in 1853 
not exactly like it is today. Right, Thaddeus? Texas is still very much frontier country back in the 1850s. I mean, honestly, Galveston was probably where most of the action was in the southeastern quadrant of the of the state. 1853, Texas has fought its war for independence from Mexico back in 1836. That's when they win independence. You've probably heard of the Battle of the Alamo. That's March of 1836. Yeah, Viva la Alamo, right? I think it's Recuerde <laughs> del Alamo. <laughs> okay. But yeah, we're right. Remember, Remember the, the Alamo. Alamo. Exactly. Yes. Okay, good. Um, the Texians, that's what they went by, not Texans, but Texians at that time were led by James Bowie, or Bowie. I've heard it also alleged that his name was Bowie, and William Travis, but they lost that battle after a 13-day siege. The Alamo fell to General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the infamous Santa Ana. So you said James Bowie or Bowie? Yeah. That, rem- that reminds me of the knife, a Bowie knife That's or right. a Bowie knife. He's the inventor of the of the Bowie knife, the oh, Bowie is, knife. Mm-hmm. Is he really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now what's disappointing is that I mean, there's a Bowie knife, but as far as we know, there's no Scanlon knife. I mean, this guy was a pocket knife mm. carver, but we don't have any evidence of there being a, a Scanlon knife or anything I particular never, to him, right? No, I never came across one. Okay. Scanlon knife. So the Alamo falls to Santa Ana, but just a month later in 1836, General Sam Houston defeated Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto. You non-Texans don't dare call it the Battle of San Jacinto. That's not how it's pronounced. It's the Battle of San Jacinto. Okay. So moving on from the uh, the, the two non-Texans here at the table, Ren, we'll, we'll keep this story going. Okay, where are we at? So yeah, so the Battle of San Jacinto, that's the climactic battle that wins Texas its independence from Mexico. It's its own country. It's the Republic of Texas, the Lone Star Republic. Amen. Still going to your head. Let's keep moving. (laughs) Until 1845, when it was formally annexed into the United States. Now, this is a good place to pause and say that one of the reasons why Texas and its annexation into the United States took some time and it was somewhat and it was controversial, not somewhat, was because Texas would be coming into the Union as a slave state. And we're looking at the antebellum period where this balance of power between slave and free states was crucial to the harmony and the prosperity of the Union. And we're going to spend more time talking about slavery and the legacy of slavery right. when we get when we look at Tim's role in Reconstruction. Right, right, right. Uh, but right now we're just trying to kind of get y'all into the story of Tim Scanlon. So Texas comes in in 1845. That precipitates the Mexican-American War in 1846. U.S. troops fighting for and laying claim to millions of acres of land all the way from Louisiana up into half of modern-day New Mexico, even into the great state of Oklahoma. There we go. My native state of Colorado. (laughs) Utah, folks. Not to mention California came in as a state after the Mexican-American War. So it was a huge swath of territory that came under the Stars and Stripes in 1848. So, Thaddeus, if I'm interpreting what you're saying, Mm -hmm. Matt basically lived in Texas, right? 
Now hold on yeah. there. Hold on he, there. He lives in what is properly Texas. Okay. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. I like that. You know, that's fighting words to some Oklahomans, not Oklahomians. God's country, right, Matt? As you said. <laughs> yes, Oklahoma yeah. is okay. God's country. All right, all right. We'll we'll leave it there. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems like we're telling a lot of this story about the history, but it'll be important later in our story to really have some of this context about yeah. what the region was like, about like you said, the the role of Texas in the Civil War, Tim moving to Texas during this time. So hopefully this is helpful later in the story. Yeah. So Texas joined the union in 1845. Like we said, then we had the Mexican-American War and the city of Houston continued to grow, aided by the port of Galveston, the largest port west of New Orleans, believe it or not, at this time. Hmm. As you might expect, the primary commodity of Texas was cotton and there was a booming slave trade, especially think more an internal slave trade of planters who maybe live in South Carolina or Georgia and they're small time planters. Well, they know they can move out to Louisiana or mm. East Texas and become more large scale planters. And so they move with their slaves to Texas. So it's the largest port west of New Orleans at this time. But how big is the area? How, what's the population of the Galveston, Houston area? In this time frame. Oh, yeah. Good question, Ren. We should clarify that. You're right. 1860 Galveston, according to Andrew's research, had a population of 6,000 whites, 1,100 enslaved persons, and only two free blacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Houston, by comparison, had a population of around 4,400. That's whites and blacks combined. That's the number we were able to find. Hey, Ren, do you remember a couple years ago when we went on that snowshoe hike in the woods trying to figure out how to help more Catholic organizations raise more money? I do, Andrew. We had a great conversation about the need for churches and other nonprofit organizations to build new buildings, hire new staff, and increase their mission, but their need for a strong foundation of development skills. From that hike and that conversation came the idea for a manual for the annual fund, which is the fundamentals of development. From that conversation, we built the Petrus Annual Manual Program. It's crazy how just a couple of years later, we've helped dozens of nonprofit organizations just through a simple development calendar, guides and samples, and a weekly call with a consultant, raise more money and get a more solid footing for their development operations. It is great. You can learn about the annual manual yourself by visiting petrusdevelopment.com slash annual manual. So really at this time, there's a lot of growth in the state of Texas. There's, yep. You know, Galveston is growing. Houston continues to grow. But, you know, we also know from this time period in 1960, 1961, that there's a lot of tension between the North and the South. Abraham Lincoln just gets elected in 1860. So, Thaddeus, can you tell us a little bit about where Texas fell in this question about if it comes to it, are they going to secede? Sure, sure. So I think there's no question Texas is a slave state. It's a slave society. Slavery is the major it's a major part of its economy and its society, right? Well, I mean, we just heard from those numbers that just the city of Galveston, it's, you know, basically 20% of the, almost 20% of the population. Exactly. Are exactly. Yeah. So what's happening in the early 1850s is that Texas is a one-party state. The Whigs have dissolved. So there's there's the Democratic Party, and it's in two groups. There's either pro-Sam Houston Democrats and there's anti-Sam Houston Democrats because he's kind of the the pole around mm -hmm. it, which everything turns. The top men in the state party were all basically unionists 
And Sam Houston in the Senate from Texas consistently voted with an eye toward Texas flourishing only within the union, not apart from the union. So he's this leader of a unionist view in Texas. He didn't think the South had the wherewithal to stand alone. And he thought Southern nationalism, if the Southern states push too hard on this question of we can be apart from the union and and be successful, it's just going to produce the same sentiment in the North. And that's that's ultimately not going to be conducive for, you know, Texas's growth and prosperity. So Sam Houston is opposed to secession. Yeah. But ultimately in what 1861, it comes to a vote, right? That's correct. There are other states that are seceding. That's Texas right. puts it to a vote. How does that vote turn out? Lincoln's elected in 1860, November of 1860, and December 20th of 1860, South Carolina secedes. They're the first state to go out. Mm-hmm. Texas has a special convention meet in January of 1861, and they pass a secession ordinance on February 1st, 1861. This ordinance gets put to a public vote mm. March 2nd, 1861. It passed 46,000 to basically 15,000, Wow! making secession official as of March 2nd, 1861. Yes. So Tim is working hard, trying to navigate having a business in this political climate, everything else going on, but he has built up a successful trading business, and it's actually going so well that in 1860, he catches the eye of one of the daughters of the Houston elite. On April 28th, 1861, Tim and Sophia Hermione Ebert get married. So was was she a Catholic immigrant as well? So the Ebert family is actually German. They're German immigrants a couple generations back, but they've built up a successful business in the state of Texas, and they are Lutheran, not surprisingly. Um, A lot of Germans are Lutherans at this time. But Tim and Sophia fall in love. In April of 1861, they get married. It kind of seems like everything's falling into place from a business and from a personal side, right? Yeah, but there's this storm cloud brewing as we know what happens in the 1860s. Yeah, that's literally the head of the secession crisis in April of 1861. That's Fort Sumter being fired upon yeah, and yeah. Lincoln asking for troops. I think that the fort actually gets fired on like the week before they get married in April. That's, a, that's yeah. amazing. And I think this is a cool tease in because— What a time to be starting a new life together. Wow. I, yeah. Exactly, because here is two lovebirds. They fall in love. They get married. Here's a young man who is an Irish immigrant who's poor and has made something of himself— All of this is kind of coming in at this time in history where we know there is great division. And the the secession was actually talked about in the papers as a divorce. That's Mm. some imagery that was used. So we've got a marriage happening in the midst of this great national divorce. Yeah, so Tim is—you're right. He's not an old guy. He's about 28, 29 years old at this time. Secession of Texas from the Union and the expansion of the Civil War is really going to— put him in a tough position. He was very supportive of the black man. He really didn't believe that he could fight on behalf of the Confederacy. And he's got this successful business. He really doesn't even know if he can contribute to the economy that's supporting the Confederacy at this point. So in 1861, he's, he's at a crossroads. Tim has to decide if he's going to stay and fight or if he's going to get the hell out of town. Whoa. I mean, that's got to be a huge decision that he's got to make. Yep, yep. So what does he do? Well, Matt, I think you know where we're going right now, right? (laughs) Is this where I'm supposed to say can't wait? Okay, yeah. Uh, So next episode, we are going to dive into this decision point for Tim, uh, for his new wife, Sophia. Tim's wrestling with a lot, and 
we're going to unpack some of that. We're going to continue to tell the story of post-Civil War Reconstruction, Tim Scanlon, his life. But you're going to have to wait next episode. Can't wait. Okay, good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions. Graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. All of our Holy Donors were connected to the organizations they support through great development officers. Do you want to learn to raise more money for your organization? Go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash education to learn about our free Petrus Academy offerings every month. See you there. <laughs> that didn't sound so seagull-y. There you go. You could probably just do the voice, though, too. You know, Whatever. You want to stay out here as long as possible, listening to the birds, the sailors, and the waves crashing against the side of the boat. Do that sentence again. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Is this like a, oh, you want synonyms for amazing? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Fascinating. It's marvelous. Cannot wonderful. be understated, overstated. <laughs> now you don't even know what it is, dummy. That's what you get. I'm going to use prodigious. Is that how you say it? Prodigious? <laughs> the one and only, the amazing, the one who makes us sound. Uh, what's a synonym for me? I just said amazing. The one who makes us sound unbelievable. <laughs> okay, here we go. Take take forty eight. <laughs> no, I was totally zoned out on that one. I will get it All this right. time. Take sixty. Take sixty.